Thank you for your donation to Carbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.carbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome again for this uh, study on the book of Revelation. Today we're going to begin. We're going to open the book. And God willing, we're going to be able to cover the first four verses. You think it's funny. I'm not even sure we're going to be able to make it through. Uh, you read the book? God bless you. Easy, right? Hopefully it will become easier. The further you went, the weirder it got. Hopefully it will become a little bit easier. As I said last time, the outline we're going to follow on the book of Revelation is as follows. There's going to be a prologue, and today we're going to cover half of it. Next week, we'll cover the rest. That's, that goes from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 1, verse 10. Then there is this discourse of Jesus to the church, and it is modeled according to a covenantal lawsuit, meaning that Jesus is chastising the church, and you will see the structure for every church. Therefore, it is an act of purification of the church. Following that, and that goes from, verse, uh, from chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 22. Following that, Jesus turns his attention to the world. And he does it in two steps. There is a warning, which is from chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse, verse 17. And then there is a chastisement that follows. And that is from chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 18. And this is a very classic structure that is followed by the prophets, particularly Isaiah. We find it also in the book of Ezekiel. Essentially, it is very prophetic in its structure. Then, from chapter 11, verse 19 through 1420, there's something that is very important that happens, and that is the revelation. The first word, the first two words in the book, if you recall, is the revelation. And that's when it happens, right there. So there is first a period of purification before the revelation occurs. And then it occurs. And interestingly enough, once it occurs, you think things are going to be fine. Actually, they get a lot worse. And that is typical, absolutely typical, and it will make perfect sense. Because that's when Satan is going to go on the attack. 
It's a complete onslaught. So as graces flow, Satan tries to drown them. But of course, he's not, he's not successful. And then in chapter 20, verse 1 through 22, verse, verse 5, we have the revelation that is actually taking root and becoming reality. And finally, we have the epilogue, chapter 22, verse 10 through 22, verse 21. I do not expect this outline that I gave you right now to make perfect sense. This is an outline that took me two and a half years to get to. It's not easy. And I don't think it is perfect either. It might change. So this is not easy. But hopefully, as we walk through this book together, it'll become easier. But it requires work on your part. But it's blessed work. It is blessed work. So the more effort you put into it, and the, the, the more sincere the effort is, the greater the reward is. And you will see that as we go through it. Very well. Typically, every study of the book of Revelation starts with two things. Authorship and dating. I don't mean dating. I mean when the book was written. That dating. And much has been written on those two topics. All I'm going to say right now is the conclusion, where I stand. And I'll elaborate on that as we go through. Because I think most of you may not really appreciate what goes behind this issue of dating and the issue of authorship. Once you start to appreciate it more, we'll talk more about it. Authorship, St. John, the Apostle. Dating, my take on it is before 70 AD, probably before 60 AD. And I'll give you reasons why. I'll tell you right away, there are a number of leading theologians, most of them, many of them actually Catholics, who will tell you that they're not sure it's St. John who wrote it, and will tell you that it may have been written in the 90s, 96 AD, maybe even later. I'll give you reasons why I think this earlier dating holds. That's all I'll say about the dating right now. With that, let us then open the book <coughs> and start chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to look right now, actually, let me, let me read to you all four verses, and then we'll go back to that first verse. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, reads as follows. And I'm using the um, standard, the, the revised standard version Catholic edition. I can never say this thing straight. I have to look at it. The revised standard version Catholic edition. This is the edition I'm using. It is a uh, terse translation, but it is fairly uh, faithful, mostly, in most cases, faithful to the original. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein. 
for the time is near. Actually, I made a mistake. We're going to cover the, th the first three verses, hopefully. So, let me read it to you one more time. I think it's worth reading it again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. At this point in time, what I would like you to do, <clears throat> if you can, is try to form a mental image of what I just read. Try to picture in your mind what that means. And you will probably fall within one of three categories. Category number one, the image is crisp, makes perfect sense. How many of you will fall in this category? All right, category number two, it's like a broken TV. You kind of see the image straight, and then it goes zigzag, and the sound goes off, and it fades. So you're only having it by bits and pieces. Who, th who, who feels that they fall in this category? This is going to help me as I proceed through. Good, good. Category number three, no connection. You turn on the TV, and it's the gray lines. Who fall in this category? Good, good. You know, be honest. That's very important. If you're not honest about where you stand with regard to this book, you're not going to be able to make progress. We have to be very honest. Humility is the root that we need to grow on. So let's not kid ourselves. All right? Let's see if we can clarify this picture today. Here's one principle you're going to find out. The hardest questions about the book of Revelation are the easiest one to state. The easiest questions are the hardest. But those are the ones that we should never overlook. I'm going to give you examples as we go through. Let's start with the first half of the first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the revelation? You can take that word revelation right now in one of two meanings. You can consider it as an action. Meaning, Jesus Christ is being revealed to us. You understand? The revelation of Jesus. Jesus Christ is being revealed to us. That's one way of understanding this. The other is as a noun. The revelation is something that belongs to Christ. You're with me? Which one is it? First, both, the latter. First, both, the latter. Right? Which one is it? How do we proceed about finding an answer? Right? How do we proceed when we're trying to find an answer? Well, there are a couple of things that are going to guide us. I told you about the four senses. I also told you about the fact that 
we can't take the book of Revelation out of Scripture. We cannot interpret the book apart from Scripture. Right? So therefore, it must be understood within the context of all of Scripture and the mind of the church. How did the early Christians, how did the church understood it? Bearing that in mind, we know infallibly that the real author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. So, if the Holy Spirit is saying the revelation, what is implied? Something is being revealed. If something is revealed, it is meant to be understood. You're with me? It is meant to be understood. The Holy Spirit means for us to understand this. Otherwise, it would not be a revelation. To reveal something is to show its true nature. You're with me? Keep that. Hold on to this as you go through the book. This book is meant to be understood. The, the word revelation in the Greek comes from the word apocalypse, from the verb apocalypto, to reveal. Literally, literally, the lifting of the veil. That's what it means. That's why it's called the apocalypse, because of the first word. Okay? So, before we understand what revelation is, let's make sure we understand what it's not in the context of the book of St. John. You need to realize that right around that time, there were many other books written as revelation. And those come to us from a Jewish background. The Jews were oppressed by the Romans. And before that, under Antiochus Epiphanes, about 100, 150 or 100 BC, they were also oppressed by another foreign force. And writings in that genre started to come out to express the hope of liberation from the oppressor. So those types, those books, which were called also apocalyptic, or written in the apocalyptic genre, were essentially meant as a political tract against the oppressor. Their purpose is to tell their people to keep hope because one day they will be oppressed of the dominating power. One, one um, theologian or, or, or uh, writer actually by the name of Fiorenza, states the following about the book of Revelation. He says, Revelation reflects a political, religious conflict with the Roman Empire and the persecution of the church in Asia Minor under Domitian. Domitian being the, Roma, the Roman emperor. So his view is that it is a political, religious conflict. It's reflecting that conflict. He sees the book of Revelation as an expression of a political and religious conflict with Rome. This view, by the way, is very prevalent. How many of you have heard or have seen studies that present the book of Revelation as a prophecy about the destruction of Rome? You've seen that, right? That's not going to be the thesis I'm going to advance in this Bible study. 
this is not about the destruction of Rome. There are a number of reasons why. Number one, if it was about the destruction of Rome, then there is an error in scripture. Was Rome destroyed? Wasn't destroyed. If it was indeed a prophecy about Rome, then scripture tells us the way we know a prophet to be true and from God is by the actuality of the prophecy. If this was the case, then there's an error in scripture. That's problem number one. But more importantly, problem number two, the book of Revelation would be at variance with the rest of scripture. What is the rest of scripture telling us about the relationship of the Christians with authority? Well, we know that St. Paul appealed on multiple occasions to the Roman emperor. He was not one advocating the destruction of Rome. In fact, there was no bellicosity, there was no hatred of Rome expressed in the writings of St. Paul, anywhere. You'll find that in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 25, where he appeals to the emperor. St. Peter, in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, tells us the following. Be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to the governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the approval of those who do good. For the punishment of evildoers or those who do good. This is not the writing of a man who's hell-bent on the destruction of Rome. The Lord himself said nothing about destroying Rome. Scripture, especially the New Testament, does not bear testimony to Christians wanting to destroy Rome. In fact, it bears testimony to the Christians wanting to do what? Convert Rome. Here's the dividing line between the Christian view and the Jewish view of the time of Jesus. The Jews wanted Rome destroyed. The Christians wanted Rome converted. As I said, we have to read the book of Revelation within the context of whole of Scripture and see how the New Testament speaks about that same subject. Nowhere does it mention Rome. Furthermore, in three of the Gospels, we have what we call the mini-apocalypse of Jesus. Remember the discourse on the Mount of Olivet when they say when all these, these things are going to happen? Well, in Luke, very, very clearly, Jesus speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem. All three Gospels are targeting Jerusalem, not Rome. So, what I want you to understand right now is that the book of Revelation is not a political tract by a man who's frustrated with political authorities. If we were to reduce it to that, then we're essentially saying that the Holy Spirit did not really inspire St. John, that the book contradicts other writings in the New Testament and that its view is fundamentally a political tract. That cannot be. So we cannot go down that path. We have to think differently. As I said, the meaning of the word apocalypse from the verb apocalypto to reveal literally the lifting of the veil. 
In fact, this is a Greek word of a Hebrew word, which is jahal. And my understanding is that that word is also at the root of the transfiguration of our Lord. When Jesus went up with the, to the mountain and he was transfigured before his apostles, what did they do? How did the Father speak about it? He effectively lifted the veil of his humanity, showing them his the glory that is, that is His. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see some parallelism between the appearance of our Lord when He speaks to John and His transfiguration. Therefore, the revelation is indeed the revelation of Christ. He is appearing with the glory he received from the cross. Glory over the entire world. God gave him dominion over the entire world, as Psalm 1 says. So he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the first meaning. Now let's look at the lifting of the veil. Where in what ceremony, in what very important ceremony, there is a lifting of the veil? Marriage. marriage. Effectively, in a Jewish marriage, a Jewish marriage would last for seven days, and at the end of the seven days, there is the tent, which is prepared for the couple. The bride enters the tent, and then the groom enters the tent. And the tent is actually uh, it's sort of a almost like a Russian uh, doll, where you have tents within tents. And they enter the inner room. And when the groom enters the inner room, the bride lifts her veil. She is revealed. Now, as I told you, there are two pillars in the book of Revelation, strategically placed. Christ at the beginning, and the woman closed with the sun, right in the middle. That is why she is the revelation. She's the one being unveiled. To show you how this is prevalent in John's thought, I'd like you to turn briefly to the Gospel of St. John. And the first chapter, I want to show you something very, very brief when we come back to the book. In the, in the Gospel of St. John, you know how it starts. In the beginning was the Word. Then, verse 29, we have the next day. The next day from which day? The first, right? So that's the second day. Verse 35, the next day. That's the third day. Verse 43, the next day. That's the fourth day. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day. The third day from what? From the fourth. What is that? Seventh day. What happens on that day? The wedding feast of Cana. Who are the only two persons named at that wedding? We know them by name. Jesus and Mary. 
You see how in John, the wedding feast of the Lamb is central. In fact, in the Gospel of John, you have Mary appear at the beginning, you have Mary smack in the middle, you have Mary at the end. Again. But there's something else. John, in his customary genius, builds on the Old Testament without ever telling you he is doing that. He expects you to know it. If you turn to Isaiah, chapter 62, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, verse 4 and 5, Isaiah says something that is very strange. In fact, what he says is absolutely inexplicable without that marital imagery we just spoke about right now, which is covenantal. Let me read it to you. Speaking of Zion, he says, You shall be called my delight in her. You shall be called my delight in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For, as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your children marry you. For as a young man marries a, a virgin, so shall your children marry you. What does he have in mind? Obviously, he doesn't have marriage between a man and a woman. He's using that as a symbol, as a sacrament, if you will, pointing to something higher. What is it? The marriage feast of Cana is truly at the spiritual level, the union between Christ and his mother. You see, our Catholic devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which are always present, present as joined, is rooted in Scripture. It is this notion that the mother and the son are spiritually <clears throat> bonded together in a bond of love that is stronger than marriage. Nothing can separate them. And truly, of Mary and Jesus, we can say, they are one flesh. For she's the only person who can look at the cross and say, flesh of my flesh, bones of my bones. Do you understand? It is the prefiguration of what will happen between the soul and Christ, which is that union of the soul with Jesus Christ. That's what Isaiah is speaking of. He's basically saying of the New Jerusalem that the children of the New Jerusalem will be so bonded to her that this bond is as strong if not stronger than marriage. And what do we have in the chapter 19 of the book of Revelation? 19 verse 9. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So then effectively, Revelation is about two things. It is about the appearance of Christ, victorious and King of kings, Lord of lords, the appearance of his bride, the church. And then it is about the language of love between the two of them, which is the liturgy. For the liturgy is a love letter from Christ to his bride and her answer. It is our song of songs. 
That is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What I am saying to you requires contemplation. This is an image that is given which is seeped in mystery and requires contemplation. It is in prayer and on our knees and with hard work that we get to understand this book. But those are the two pillars of that revelation. Christ, His church, and the language of love. Why do we find that difficult? Number of reasons. Reason number one, because we don't understand as well as the Christian of the time the meaning of a community, the meaning of communion, the meaning of being part of one body. We live in a society that actually pushes us the other way. My place, my music, my car, my thing. That's reason number one. We have a hard time understanding that covenantal reality because we live in a world that actually pushes us the other way. The second reason is because we typically reduce the liturgy to its cultic aspect, meaning the modes of behavior we have during Mass. Effectively, for most of us, the liturgy is like someone traveling to this far-off distant planet where stuff happens over there, and then he comes back to Earth, and there's absolutely no connection between the two. We have a very narrow understanding of the liturgy. And that's why the book of Revelation is so important, because it is going to shatter that view and give us back what is our inheritance, the power of the liturgy. That's why it's such an important revelation. At this juncture, you may have an objection. You may say to me, but wait a minute. Isn't it true that the church was revealed on the cross when Christ died and a soldier pierced his side, blood and water flowed? That was the birth of the church. Furthermore, what about Pentecost? Pentecost is the day where the church moves out and people start to be converted. And our church is already established. John is going to talk to seven churches. Why do you say... This is about the revelation of Jesus and his church. There are two answers to this question. The first, angelic, and the other one is human. This is not just, this is not our business. It is the business of the angels as well. Never forget that. The demons and the angels are as engaged into this as we are. What happened on the cross is the absolute victory of Jesus Christ. But you can compare it, you can think of it as a victory that had happened deep within the bowels of the earth. So deep within the bowels of the earth we had this enemy and he, Jesus went all the way down and conquered him. You know what? This is like three or six miles that this news has to creep all the way back up. Meaning in practice, pastorally, even though the victory has been won in heaven, it hasn't yet been applied on earth. It has started, but there are difficulties. This book, effectively, I consider it to be more pastoral than theological. It is about the governance of the church, her authority, her power, and how Christ intends to establish her. 
That is why, if you recall from our conversation on the covenant, I pointed out to you that even though in 33 AD the new covenant began, the old covenant kept on going because the sacrifice of the temple was still there. And there were 40 years of overlap. That's because of pastoral issues, because of our way we move as humans. We're not angelic in nature where we can switch like this. Things take time. So here is Christ coming at a moment of need, affirming the truth that was won on the cross, and showcasing it and illuminating it from heaven. Good. We've covered one word. So to summarize it, Revelation is then the unveiling, the unveiling, if you were, or the unveiling of the bride by the groom and their language of love, which is the liturgy, which God gave him. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Now, isn't Christ God? Yes? See what I mean when I say the simplest questions are typically the most difficult to answer? But we cannot circumvent those questions. We have to ask them. And we have to hold the Holy Spirit to task. Holy Spirit, you wrote it. You want us to understand it. On our knees, we beg you, help us. But we're not going to shirk, shirk away from the difficulty. Isn't Jesus Christ God? So then it's like, which Jesus Christ gave to Jesus Christ. Is that it? Okay, three persons. So God the Father gave to God the Son. But I thought, Christ said, everything my Father has is mine. Everything is mine, he has. So what is he giving him? Here is one tip I'm going to give you about the way John writes. Anytime you see something written like this, which you think is extraneous, it's like it doesn't convey any meaning, tell yourself right away, there is depth of meaning here that I'm ignorant of. The problem is not the text, it's me. Okay? What you will notice, and we will see it again, I told you a minute ago, but of course, when I asked, when I put the question to you, I threw, I threw uh, magic sand in your eyes. I made you forget everything I said for the past 20 minutes. I said it is about the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Okay. Who is Jesus Christ? He is true God and true man. Did Jesus Christ save us with his divinity alone? No, because if that's what he wanted to do, all he had to do was to say abracadabra, it's done. He saved us with what? His humanity. His humanity. Christ prayed like a man. He prayed like us, but perfectly. He actually taught us how to pray. It is the sacred humanity of Christ that was crucified. At the time of John, remember that even in the church there were already tendencies to do what? To deny one of those two truths. Oh, he's, he's not God. Oh, he's, he's, he's not a man. So what is he affirming here? The humanity 
He's affirming the humanity of Christ. We take it for granted, you see. No one today is challenging us in saying that Jesus Christ was not a man. Actually, it's, the challenge is, tends to be on the opposite side. Right? But back then, the challenge was on both sides. You see why this text was really targeted to the people living around John during his time? You see how there is this temporal concern and it was not written for the end of the world? You notice that? Because we don't have that concern. We feel really strange. It's like, huh, here we go. The Jehovah Witness can use that. Because, you know, the Jehovah Witness do not believe that Christ is God. Yeah, they'll speak of Jesus. They'll speak of God the Father. They'll speak of the Holy Spirit. They sound Trinitarian, but they're not. If you ask them, is Jesus Christ God, they will tell you no. Okay? They're not Christian. So, which God gave him? Well, no. What it meant is that Christ, in his humanity, won for us salvation. And it is through him, as true God and true man, that the church becomes reality. That is what is in that one little sentence of which God gave him. You want me to say what I just said again? I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> what I said was that God, Christ won for us salvation through his humanity. He suffered in the agony as a man. He carried the cross. His flesh was torn and pierced. And he died as a man. And it is this action of the sacred and adorable humanity, and I'm using the word adorable in the first sense, to adore. Okay? Never allow yourself to adore Jesus as a spirit. You adore his humanity. You kiss his feet. It is through his humanity that he saved us and won for us salvation and therefore elevated humanity and gave it its dignity that it has today. That's why John is saying which God gave him as Christ, true God and true man. Right now he's affirming only his humanity. You'll see a little bit later where he affirms his divinity. And it's all through Revelation where, where he affirms both constantly. To show his servants to show, to show. You know, I cannot tell you the number of commentaries I read on the book of Revelation where the author assumed that the book of Revelation is a pure composition on, the, on John's part. Basically, John had something to tell us, so he decided to use all this imagery. There's no vision, nothing happened, just a sky. The expression, and I saw, and I saw, is repeated 34 times in the book of Revelation. 34 times John tells us, and I saw. St. John of Arc said this about Scripture. She said, Scripture is the word of God, which he gave to his church, and I do not think we need to complicate matters. If John says 34 times, and I saw, what do you think he was trying to tell us? I saw. Okay? 
Pin saw. I'm flabbergasted how those guys can write so liberally about, yeah, John is just using these constructs and these images and composing them and putting them together. Excuse me. This book is written by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is revealing something to us, not confusing us. So Jesus wants to show John something. You think that to show has any basis in Scripture? Can you think of another important event where someone was shown something? Transfiguration? Jeremiah? Moses. Moses. Book of Exodus, chapter 25, verse 8, 9. And let them make me, this is the Lord speaking, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst according to all that I shall show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And all of its furniture, so so you shall make it. So God showed Moses the pattern of the tabernacle and how he was supposed to build it. Now, what do you suppose John sees in chapter 11? Right at the end of the chapter. And the temple of the Lord was open, and there was the tabernacle. So, why is that important? Because I need to explain something to you about references. Let me give you an example from real life. Because you might think, oh, what they're doing is impossible for us to do, but we do it all the time. Let's say... You came to me and you said, how was your day? And you knew I was on travel for some business. And if I just said to you, oh, what a 9-11 this was. Did I just say to you two numbers? Is that what I just said? I just pulled in a whole context, didn't I? The whole history, a whole bunch of images and stuff and emotions and events just by using those two words, didn't I? Because you know about 9-11. If I had said to you, oh well, what a 7-12 this was. <laughs> You'd think, you know, he's, you know, he's on crack or something. Something's wrong with him. Why? No context, right? Absolutely no context. Guess what? Most of us read the book of Revelation like me saying it's 7.12. We can't pick the clues and drag the context in because on the one hand we don't know scripture. On the other, we're too lazy to research it. How do you want God to bless us when we're not willing to work on scripture? So anytime you see something like this to show him, which seems so innocuous, so banal, why is he telling us this? Take that as a clue and say, wait a minute, let me do, let me just plug the word show and see where it shows in scripture. And then follow the clues. And then drag that context in. Bring it in. And then you go, oh, that's what he had in mind. Because you're dealing here with someone whose theology and understanding of scripture rivals that of St. Paul. Easily. He's not the ego 
I mean, he's the eagle for a really good reason. He knows his scripture inside and out. And he expects his readers to know it. Because they didn't have TV and internet and the iPod and their pager and their cell phone and wireless connection to get distracted. They studied scripture. Why is it important that he goes all the way back to that particular event? What was happening on the mountain when God is telling Moses, you're going to build me a tabernacle? When God said this to Moses, Moses must have had a kind of a holy, huh? Why? Because God was telling him, look, I'm going to come and live among the people. I'm going to be right in the middle of the camp. Suddenly God is saying, you're going to build me a little house outside the camp. Huh? Because God knew what, was, what they were doing down, down there. Yeah. The, the golden calf and all that. Moses didn't, but God did. So he was already preparing for the aftermath. Because he loves his people. He's a good father. It'd be like you're sending your kids on a kennel trip. And you're telling your older son, uh, here's, your, here's the insurance, uh, medical insurance for your brother. And here's the closest hospital. And then here's the phone number you can call me at. And here's the police number you can call. And I've arranged it so that you can actually call a helicopter to pull him when you need to. And your son might be going, huh? But in your wisdom, you know that your younger son is completely reckless. He's probably going to break his leg. So you're preparing for the event. That's called wisdom. That's what God was doing. He was preparing for that. You understand? So, that is right in the middle of those events where God gives the Ten Commandments. God reveals His Word. And God establishes the Old Covenant with Moses. So when He says to show Him, there's a ting that goes in. And you follow the trail all the way back and you, you understand the context that John is proceeding from. Now you might tell me, wait a minute, what kind of rabbit are you pulling out of this hat? Now I'll say to you, be patient and see if I can't pull that rabbit over and over again. And hopefully you might get convinced that I'm not pulling any rabbit. But the clues are in the text left for us to learn. What must soon take place? What must soon take place? The question, the first question we have is this. Does this refer to an action that will take place or to an object that will take place? What is the soon referring to? What is going to take place soon? Is it an action? For instance, I might say, um, we will travel to um, Florida soon. That's an action. Or I might say, we're going to build a church soon. That's an object. What must soon take place? Which is it? You notice those things? It's constant in the writings of St. John. They always come in a pair. He's a genius as actually piling images on top of each other and combining meaning together. 
In this specific instance, it's going to be both. Because I've told you, Revelation is about two things. It is the revealing of Christ. It is the revealing of his church. The object and the action. Both of those are going to take soon. They're going to take place soon. What do you understand soon to mean? The end of the world? Anybody want to understand soon to mean the end of the world? Soon. Like, like not, you know, soon. Right? Now, I've heard arguments where soon is then contrasted to the writings of St. Peter, because St. Peter says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. St. Peter said, with the Lord. Is Christ talking to the Lord? He's talking to us. Do you think he think we can understand soon as a thousand years? Okay. You understand? Keep that principle that the text must be understood. Must be understood by people living during the time of St. John. What must soon take place? It means soon. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Here we go again. He made it known. The it, of course, refers to the revelation that we just talked about. By sending his angel. The funny thing is, as you read through, do you see that angel? Is there anywhere? No. He doesn't show up. Maybe the angel decided not to come. Maybe he got distracted, but he is nowhere to be seen. So can't we just take that, sending his angel out? Does it add anything to the text? Pardon? Who's guardian angel? Sending his angel. Jesus' angel. Pardon? Right, but this particular angel is not named. He didn't say by sending an angel, by sending his angel. Notice, there it is. And we don't even know what his it is. That sounds like uh, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> That's a Dr. Seuss thing. <laughs> we don't know what his is referring to. There's no reference. Usually you say his, you're, you have something in mind. Why not say what, by sending an angel? What's up with this, his angel? Again, as soon as you see this, the flag should, goes up, should go up. Ah, there's context to be drawn here. And you bet there is. It's actually very rich. Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. This is Nabucodonosor speaking after he tried to fry Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He put them in the furnace and, and put the fire in Turned them trying to barbecue, didn't work. They were still alive. And then he came in, what did he say? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel to deliver the servants that trusted in him. They disobeyed the royal command and yielded their bodies rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Smack within the context we're talking about, where Christians are tempted to serve other gods and not theirs. What is John saying by saying by sending his angel? 
he brings in this whole context. 9-11, here you go. The whole context. The king of Babylon is praising the Lord. Ah, what do you think is going to happen in Rome? The emperor will praise the Lord. That's John for you. That's what I'm talking about. If you are willing to lower yourself and read scripture very slowly and meditate and roll up your sleeves and be detective and work at it, it opens up for you. Otherwise, it won't. Now, you think this is the only one? No. Watch. Daniel chapter 6, verse 23. And the book of Daniel is going to loom large in the book of Revelation. My God has sent his angel and closed the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me, for I have been found innocent before him. Neither to you have I done any harm, O king. Pardon? 6.23 and... Um, I'm sorry, the first one is 3.28. And the other one is 6.23. If, if I got the, the references, it could, it could be that I got the references wrong. Pardon? All right, I'll, I'll, thank you. 623 is right, so the, three, the, the other one is not. I'll get you the, thank you for pointing this out. I may have copied the wrong uh, reference. I'll get you the right reference. It's easy for me. Remember, re remind me to do it next, next, next time. But the, 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 the verse is, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel to deliver the servants that trusted in him. They disobeyed the royal command and yielded their bodies rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Now, Luke chapter 22, 43. Jesus is in the garden, and he's going through agony. And what do we read? And to strengthen him, an angel appeared to him. And in Acts 12, verse 11... Peter is being freed. And then, what do we read? Then Peter recovered his senses and said, Now I know for certain that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people has been expecting. That's in Acts 12, verse 11. You see how the sent his angel, which seems innocuous, brings you the entire context of what John has in mind? He uses his word very, very carefully. It is a context of persecution against the church, people who are willing to bow before the emperor, as well as persecution from the Jewish authorities against the Christians. And in all these situations, the Lord has sent his angel. So what is the role of that angel? To comfort, to strengthen, to defend, to protect. Let me ask a question. Did the Lord send you an angel? Yes, it's called your garden angel. Your garden angel does all those four things. Hopefully you're not ignoring him. Now, an alternative translation reads, and he sent and signified it by an angel. Signified it. St. John, in his gospel, uses the word signs. He doesn't speak of Jesus making miracles, but signs. And there are seven major signs in his gospel. Seven. The wedding of Cana, John 2.11. The cure of the centurion's son, John 4.54. The healing of the crippled by the pool of Siloe, 5.1-4. The feeding of the multitude, 6.14. Jesus walks on water, 6.16-21. The healing of a blind man, 
9.16, the raising of Lazarus, 11.47. Those are the seven major signs. So what is the role of the angel? It's to provide a sign. So effectively, the reason why we read by sending his angel, in all those circumstances, the role of the angel is to protect, to eliminate the mind, to defend, to help. Hence, the angel is present as John goes through all of this. That's why there's no need to name him, and that's why there's no need for him to say anything. His role is to help St. John. So that's the first action of the Lord. And notice, therefore, what is the first action of the book of Revelation? The sending of an angel. Okay? All right. Second verse. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Who bore witness. The word in Greek is derived from martyria, martyr. To be a witness is to be a martyr. So to be a martyr is someone who is willing to put his, light, his life on the front line in order to express the truth of the faith. So if anyone comes to you one day, God willing this may not happen or might, might happen, and put a gun to your head and say, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and God? And if on that spot you say no, You've committed a mortal sin. Know that. You are required to give witness of the truth, no matter what. You try everything you can to preserve your life, but you do not derogate from the truth. Never. So that's what a witness is. The Word of God. What is meant by the Word of God? He bore witness to the Word of God. Right? Now, think scripturally. Can you think of a context where the word of God looms large? I mean, really large. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And here we go again. If the word of God is Jesus Christ, why does he say the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? Doesn't that sound redundant? No. Divinity, humanity. You understand? That's why. John stands witness to the divinity and humanity of the Lord. That's why. All right. I'd like to remind you also that in the Gospel and in the New Covenant, bearing witness has a judicial meaning within a court of law. This is judicial language. To bear witness doesn't mean, yep, yeah, yeah, I agree. To bear witness is to speak under oath. That's what John is willing to do, to speak under oath. Testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, this is covenantal language. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? In law, a testimony is a form of evidence that is obtained from a witness who makes a solemn statement or declaration of fact. Testimony may be oral or written and is usually made by oath or affirmation under penalty or perjury. Did Jesus testify? Did he ever testify? No? Pardon? Okay. But does he ever use the word I testify or my testimony? Oh yeah. Oh you bet. Where? Gospel of John. 
You see why I am, I, I, I'm in the middle of verse 2, and I keep on going to John. You see why I think this is John? Internal evidence shows you, if you really study this, it's John. Okay? John 3.11. Amen, amen, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. John 5.31-34. through 34. If I testify on my own behalf, my testimony cannot be verified. But there is another who testifies on my behalf, and I know that the testimony he gives on my behalf is true. You sent emissaries to John, and he testified to the truth. I do not accept testimony from a human being, but I say this, that you may be saved. John 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify to it that its works are evil. John 8, verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, even, uh, even if I do testify on my own behalf, my testimony can, can be verified because I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Yeah. You understand? Context? That's what you're dealing with. Someone who knows scripture inside and out. That's why the book is difficult. We're not there. We're nowhere to be seen. Roll up your sleeves. Sit down and work. Spend 15 minutes. Even if all you get after 15 minutes is frustration, it'll be holy frustration. <laughs> God will reward you for your effort. Even to all that he saw. Even to all that he saw. What did he see? Does this apply to what John saw before? Or does it apply to what John saw after? Both. Both. But did he see something and he said, did John say anywhere that I saw this and it's true? Yeah. Three times. In his gospel. John 19, 33-35. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one soldier thrust his lance into his side and immediately blood and water flowed out. An eyewitness has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he's speaking the truth, so that you also may come to believe. Who was that eyewitness? John. You see why it is pernicious, why it is so dangerous, when a theologian say about the book of Revelation, that John did not see, but he wrote? If that's the case, how can we believe that John saw? In the Gospels. John 20, verse 30-31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in his book. But they, these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. And 21-24. through 24, It is this disciple who testifies to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. Again, he drags the entire context of the life, passion, death, and resurrection of Christ when he says, even to all that he saw. Why does he say it this way? So that he anchors the whole vision in the truth of the resurrection. That's why. 
verse 3. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. This is the first of seven blessings pronounced throughout the book of Revelation. There are seven blessings in the whole book. This is the first one. They are chapter 1, verse 3, the one I just read to you. Chapter 14, verse 13. 16, verse 15. 19, verse 9. 20, verse 6. 22, verse 7. 22, verse 14. 1, 3, 14, 13. 16, 15. 19, 9. 26, 22, 7. 22.14. Seven blessings. Blessed is he who reads aloud. Notice. And blessed are they who listen. Where do you find one reading aloud and they who listen? The liturgy. The mass. So, this book was also intended to be read within the context of the liturgy. Effectively, the book is pegged. There's a pegging, meaning a leveling between this book and the book of Ezekiel, as the vision goes. And you can effectively divide them into 50 readings, which cover the 50 Sabbath or so of the Jewish calendar, so that you have readings for the whole year. So the book, in its Intent was not only meant for those who lived during John's time, but throughout the history of the church. Blessed is he who read aloud, and blessed are those who hear and who keep, hear and keep what is written therein, for the time is near. Hear and keep. Why is it that he didn't say, blessed is he who reads aloud and keep. And blessed are those who hear and keep. Why is the guy reading is only required to read aloud to be blessed and those hearing must also keep? Doesn't that sound a little bit unfair? Kind of, you know, I'm reading aloud and kind of you, you're listening. I only have to read aloud, you have to read and keep. Doesn't that sound unfair? Doesn't it sound unfair? Why? Because the one who is reading aloud is reading within the context of the liturgy. Presumably a priest. Or a deacon. Someone within the context of the liturgy. Now when someone participates in the liturgy, what is he doing? He's giving testimony. He's basically saying, I believe in all of this. And so he's supposed to do what? To keep it. John assumes it. If you're willing to, within times of persecution, remember, to stick your neck out and celebrate liturgy, I'm assuming you're willing to keep it. Otherwise, you're batty. Something is wrong. Why would you risk your life if you're not willing to keep? That's why he doesn't say it for the one who's reading it. Now, what is read and keep? I mean, here we, we get that, right? We hear. What is keep? What are you supposed to keep? Does this mean you memorize all the words and you're able to recite them? Is that what keep? Pardon? To do according to what you hear. Precisely. The book of Revelation is what? It's a prophecy. Right? Blessed 
is he reads aloud the words of the prophecy. What is a prophecy? A prophecy is not just the foretelling of the future. That's the minor part in the prophecy. A prophecy is a message from God concerning ethical conduct. Our life is built on two pillars. Theology, knowledge of the truth. Morality, living the truth. Theology, knowledge of the truth. Morality, living the truth. Hear and keep. It's not enough to hear the truth. We have to live the truth. Effectively, you might say that morality is theology incarnate. It's theology in the body. Or the theology of the body. It is morality. The way we live. The way we conduct ourselves. So the point is not just to hear, but to live. And I've told you many, many times, it is easy for Christians, for Catholics, to hear about theology. You know, God, three, you know, three persons, one God, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the saints. All that is good stuff. When it comes to morality, things change. Ah, the church says, you know what is going to come right now? My favorite topic. I repeat myself, I know. No divorce. No contraception. You have to have custody of the eyes. You can't do... You can't be looking at all that stuff. You have to control the way you speak. That's morality. That's where we have problems. One doesn't go without the other. That's the key. We need to understand that the two work together for our happiness. Why? Because the time is near. Now, literally, in the literal sense, the time is near doesn't apply to us. It applied to those living in John's time. That's the literal sense. But how can we apply it to our time today? Is the time near in the same way? Well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But there's one thing we know. We're going to die. And we have to face judgment. We have to face judgment. Are we living a life that allows us to stand before the Lord Almighty, God of heaven and earth, and hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom of your Father, prepared to you. Are we ready to hear Him say that to us? Well, you ask me, how, how can we be ready? Do we, are we obedient children of the church? Do we obey the church precepts? The revelation of Jesus Christ, his bride. He's got only one. She teaches us the truth for our happiness. The happiest people on earth, I tell you this out of experience, the happiest people on earth are Catholic. I didn't say all Catholics are a happy bunch. I didn't say that. Don't quote me saying that. I said the happiest people on earth are Catholic. Because they're given the truth. They don't have to go search for it everywhere. And they apply themselves diligently to live it. 
And as a result, peace and grace from our Lord Jesus Christ enters their heart. That's why. Keep and hear. So, we have to listen with a prayerful attitude. Hear, speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. We have to understand the truth that is proclaimed. And we have to apply what is learned. Now guess what? Who is the person who heard and kept? Our Lady. Twice in the Gospel of St. Luke. She heard and she kept. She is the Christian in the most perfect degree. You want to learn? You want to make sure that when you stand before the Lord for your personal judgment, that you get in? Have her on your side. She's a Jewish mom. He can't say no to her. Now, I don't mean to spook you, but I really want you to realize this, because these days, the four last things, which mean heaven, hell, death, and judgment, are barely spoken about. I'll tell you this. It is the conviction of all the fathers of the church that the majority of people on this planet go to hell. Okay? This is not something that I'm saying, so I, I, I'll, I'll scare you, or maybe if I'll scare you into prayer, that'll be a good thing. I'll be really happy about that. I'm simply saying this to you so you understand that this is something you have to take very seriously. We live in an era where people think that going to heaven is easier than going to Harvard. It is not so. Have Our Lady on your side. And let her teach you to keep and hear. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.